every nation has a foreign policy. Ethiopia, for example, they want strong economic ties to their regional neighbors. Switzerland is more familiar to us. They have three pillars, economy, human rights, and peace. The United States since World War II has seen itself as uh, taking benevolent responsibility for things that are happening around the world. Every nation has a foreign policy, either written or unwritten. Last week, we started a new series about the kingdom of God. I think it may go down as the most important series that we've had at Bayou City to this point. From Second Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, we saw that we are an invisible nation inside a visible nation. So here in the United States, we're a part of that nation. But we, as Christians, followers of Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 1, have been transferred into a different kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And that kingdom is invisible. You can't see it on a map anywhere. We are an invisible nation inside a visible nation. So what is the foreign policy of this invisible nation that we are now a part of? If you have a Bible, I would love to, for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple in Jerusalem and his disciples stop him and they, they want him to just take in how beautiful the temple was, which it was. It was one of the most beautiful buildings in the world at that time, a wonder of the world. But instead of stopping in awe Jesus actually says you know all of this is going to be torn down there won't be any stones left on top of one another which was not just a statement about construction it was actually sacrilege because the temple in Jerusalem was God's holy home to say that violence was going to happen to it it was a huge deal in fact Jesus enemies just a few chapters later are going to use that statement against him as a reason a justification for his crucifixion he said that he was going to destroy the temple a little bit later on, his disciples come to him privately and they say, help us unpack what you meant. And they ask two specific questions. When is that going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will the signs of your coming be? Because they believe two things were going to happen at the same time. Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed. That must be at the same time that he's going to take his throne in Jerusalem, push out the Roman empire. He's going to be king. The kingdom of God is going to come. Now we know from Jesus teaching and history, that's not exactly what happened. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 but Jesus did not return. But he still gave them a list of signs of his coming. And we see those in Matthew chapter 24. Like one sign is that many false Christs would come, which has happened throughout history. In fact, it has its own Wikipedia, false Jesuses that have come since this time. There's wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution. Many Christians would fall away. Hate and betrayal would be common. There would be false prophets who would lead people astray. Lawlessness will increase while love decreases. And finally, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus will be proclaimed in every nation. Now, all of that list has happened throughout history. You can put a check next to all of them except one. The very last one. That the gospel of Jesus would be proclaimed in every nation in the world. That's never happened. That all nations at the same time have had an active gospel witness. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Verse 14 of Matthew chapter 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. 
And then the end will come. Now, when Jesus says the end will come, that feels ominous to us. We picture that person we've seen in person or on film wearing the sandwich board that says the apocalypse is upon us. They haven't bathed in a while and they're saying things that don't make sense. When we hear the end is coming, that's probably what we're picturing. Very dark, very ominous, very doom and gloom and judgment. Now, the scripture does tell us judgment is coming, but on the other side of the judgment, even in its pictures of fire, is something beautiful and good. It's a new heaven, it's a new earth, it's a new Jerusalem inside of that earth. It's a kingdom of joy, peace, and righteousness. Now, think about the world we're living in at the moment. To be participating in a kingdom of joy, peace, and righteousness. That's good news. That's not ominous, that's not dark, that's not woe. So when Jesus says the end will come, we don't have to think of something bad coming, that we're escaping something bad. Actually, Jesus is going to turn the page on this age and we're going to start a new age with joy, peace and righteousness under his leadership. This is good news. And the urgency that comes doesn't come from escaping bad news. It comes from making sure everyone knows that that good news is available to them. And that's what it's meant by the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel means good news. That's good news. That The end is coming when everyone hears and knows that everyone has been invited into Jesus' kingdom where he is Lord. The gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. Now that word nation is not used in a way that we would use it. We think of governments and boundaries and militaries. The nations he's speaking of are groups of people that are organized according to their history, their customs, and their languages. So the number of nations in our mind as we're reading this isn't limited to the actual number of governments in the world today. In fact, we know that there are 17,023 different nations, the way that Jesus means it, people groups around the world. But 40% of them statistically have no chance of hearing the gospel. There are so few Christians, if any, in 40% of this, the, these nations, these groups of people, that statistically and sociologically speaking, they will never have anyone share the good news with them that Jesus is king and his kingdom has been open to everyone. I found some things that were interesting. I want you to turn with me to the front of your Bible and at the same time to the very back of your Bible. Genesis chapter 11. Now follow along with me. These scriptures won't be on the screens. Genesis chapter 11 and then Revelation chapter 21 Let's actually start reading in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. 
And this is the only, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, Revelation chapter 21 The Apostle Paul is seeing a vision, excuse me, the Apostle John is seeing a vision through his tour guide and angel of things that are to come. And this is the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring in it, into it the glory and honor of the nations. Chapter 22, verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So these are the bookends that we find in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 10, after the flood, people are reproducing and multiplying. They think to themselves, let's not be scattered. Let's come together in one place. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower up to the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. God knows that this is going to be bad for the human race. So he comes down and instead of them speaking one language, now they speak many languages. Instead of them being in one place, he scatters them. But all along, he has a plan to bring them back together in Revelation chapter 22, which is the picture that we see. Again, people from all over the world who have followed Christ coming together. We know from Revelation chapter 7 that they did not lose their distinct ethnic identities because it's going to be every language represented, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. People of all different colors, all different backgrounds coming back to the new Jerusalem. Only this time, it's not to make a name for themselves, but they will be wearing, we will be wearing God's name on our forehead. God's plan for the nations of the world is to redeem Babel, to bring us back together as one people, still distinct with our uniqueness, celebrated and represented but back together in his name, which gives us our instructions here because who is he going to use? He's going to use us to do that work as he is redeeming Babel, as he is bringing us to the new Jerusalem all together, all nations represented followers of Jesus. He's going to use us in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus tells us how that's going to happen. First, we're going to proclaim the gospel, which means to preach the gospel or to publish the gospel. It means I'm going to share this information I'm going to publish it. If you write a book, it goes from being on your computer to now being available to the whole world. That's what proclaiming means. It means I have known the gospel of Jesus, that through his life, death, and his resurrection, I can come into his kingdom. I have known that. Now I'm making it available and known to other people. 
Years ago, I was in Northwest India, and we were working with some local churches there, encouraging Christians, uh, sharing uh, Jesus with anybody we could speak to. And the local pastor was taking us to a town and, and he said, you know, there's no church here. And so we're going to be doing some preaching, but it's just going to kind of be out in the town square. And we kind of casted lots and the lot fell to me. And I didn't know whether that was like, I should be proud of that or I should be terrified. I should have been terrified, but I was too young and dumb to know the difference. Because we get there, there is no town square. It's just a field where a building maybe had used to be and now there was nothing. And the preaching platform was one of those bases where a statue was bolted on, but there was no statue. And so I got up there and I preached my heart out. I will go on to say that it, it, it was the best sermon that no one has ever listened to. Because <laughs> no one came over. No one was curious. I just stood and talked to myself for a few minutes but still proclaim the gospel. No one was listening, but it was the publishing of this truth. These are the facts. And as God is redeeming Babel and bringing us to the new Jerusalem, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, as followers of Jesus, we have to publish the gospel. We have to push it out there. We have to make the information known, but it's more than that. Because it says in Matthew chapter 24, as a testimony to all nations. All nations. On your way in today, you pass some black banners. They're filled with different names, probably names that you don't recognize. There are 17 of them scattered around the church. They are filled with nations. Of those 17,023, those are the names of the nations that have no active Gospel witness available to them at this moment. Statistically speaking, they are unreached. But Jesus says a testimony has to be there in all of those nations. A testimony is different from proclaiming. If proclaiming is information, a testimony is demonstration. If proclaiming is here are the facts... A testimony is a life that embodies those facts. We can get information to all nations, all people across the earth, because almost everywhere now people have cell phones. We could get that information, but to get a demonstration, somebody's going to have to go. Because to demonstrate the kingdom of God, you can't do that electronically. You can't just through communication explain what it feels like when you are grieving And someone comes to your house to grieve with you. You can't just explain to someone what it feels like when you are celebrating and a brother or sister comes in a Jesus-centered way, celebrates with you. You can't explain that to someone. You just have to experience that. You can't just communicate with words and sentences what it's like to watch someone follow in the steps of Jesus, take off their outer coat, put on a towel, and wash disciples' feet, serve selflessly and humbly. You can't just communicate what it feels like to watch that happen. You have to see it demonstrated. The information we can get to these places, but the demonstration almost always requires a going. And God will use us to redeem Babel, to bring us back together in Christ. But someone's going to have to go. In Isaiah chapter 6, God asks a question. Seems odd. 
Usually we're the ones asking questions and he should be the one giving answers. But he asks the question, who will go for us? Who will we send? And I believe he's asking that same question today, just as relevant and powerfully as he asked at that time. Who will go for us? Who will we send? In the scripture, we see all kinds of different sendings. For example, we see people volunteer. That's how Isaiah the prophet answers God's question. Who will go for us? Who will we send? Isaiah says, I'll go. He doesn't even know the assignment yet. He just says, I'll go. In Acts chapter 13, we see the Holy Spirit set apart Barnabas and Saul to take the gospel to the Gentile world, the Roman Empire. They were praying, they were fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. Maybe even right now, you sense that God is setting you apart. You don't have the answers to questions, you don't know all the details, but you know that God has set you apart for something special, something unique. We also see people being brought along. This is what happens in Acts chapter 16. The apostle Paul brings along Timothy. This is a young man that he saw along his journey and said, I see some potential there. Timothy, come with me. Timothy accompanied him on his rest of his missionary journeys. And Timothy became the pastor of some of those churches that they started together. We have mentors. We have people who were following in their steps. We're not really looking to inherit anything, but one day maybe they're going to turn around and they're going to hand to us a ministry that they started with us. We're brought along. Then sometimes we just simply see a need and we meet it. Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit's power descends on the original disciples and those who are gathered to pray with them. And it creates quite a commotion. People come around to see what has happened. And Peter sees that there's a group of thousands of people who are uh, wanting to know what all this commotion is about. He sees a need and he steps up as the preacher and tells them exactly what's going on. Sometimes we just see a need in our city or around the world or here something needs to be done and we ask ourselves, why shouldn't I be the one to do it? Some of us will go. All of us are afraid. In fact, it's funny, uh, about halfway through this message, everyone stops making eye contact with me. (laughs) As if me looking at you would qualify you for... uh, what we're talking about today. All of us are afraid, which is why God gives us Jonah. Jonah is the patron saint of unwilling missionaries. <laughs> he guides us. You remember the story of Jonah. God called him. I want you to go be a missionary to the people of Nineveh and tell them to repent. Jonah doesn't want to do this. And so he gets on a boat, sails in the opposite direction. A storm comes. The sailors on the boat don't know what to do. Jonah says, the reason the storm is coming and is, is unrelenting is because of me. I'm disobeying God, so throw me overboard. Jonah didn't even have the courage to jump overboard. He made them throw him overboard. <laughs> and so they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish. We were just in Alaska. We saw a lot of whales. Uh, all of them were big. None of them were so big that Jonah would have been comfortable in that whale's belly. And the whale spits him up on dry land. And then he goes finally to Nineveh. And guess what? The people repent. They change. They admit we've been wrong. We've sinned against the God of heaven and the God of earth. And they change. But the end of Jonah is him pouting because the people of Nineveh changed. He didn't want them to change. That's why he didn't go in the first place. Because he didn't want God to extend grace to them. 
And here's what we learned from Jonah. God can put your body wherever he wants to. But he lets you determine where you're gonna put your heart. So it's okay to make eye contact with me this morning. Because if God wants you somewhere around the world with some people who have no access to the name of Jesus, he can put you there. But he'll let you determine where you put your heart. And what we learn from Jonah is it's okay to be afraid. It's not okay to not care. It's not okay on your way out to walk past those banners of country, of people after people after people after people who statistically right now have no hope of hearing the gospel. It is not okay to walk by those and not care. We all have excuses, me included. I'm too young, can't go. Got my whole life in front of me. Too old, I can't go. Got my whole life behind me. I'm married. I can't ask her to go. I can't ask him to go. I'm not married. I can't go to Azerbaijan. My prospects won't be as plentiful. <laughs> some, of, some of your prospects not that plentiful here. So maybe you should, <laughs> should try Azerbaijan. We can't go. We're married, but we don't have kids yet. We won't have kids. We can't, we can't go because we have kids. Can't go because of money. Can't go because of my job. Can't go because of my family. Can't go, can't go, can't go. We all are afraid and we all have our excuses. But if someone had listened to their excuses, we would be one of those 7,000 plus people who would not statistically have a chance of hearing the gospel. But someone overcame their excuses they let God place their body and their heart here. And so we know the good news of the kingdom. So what can we do? Well, all of us can pray. Prayer is the work. By prayer, God has ordained that he moves powerfully. All of us can pray. All of us can go. You could go for a week. In the next year, would you tithe your vacation time? Would you give a portion of it to go and serve on one of our global outreach teams? You can go online, bayoucityfellowship.com and find out where we're headed in the next year. We're going lots of places. Could you be one that would go? You're only going for a week, going for 10 days, then you're coming home. Some of you are teachers. You get the summer off. What about next summer? You tithed your summer and you went and served a month somewhere. All of us can pray. All of us can go. Some of us will go and stay. God is asking you to do more than just visit and share the gospel. He's asking you to go and embody it and live there. Maybe even for some of you, your vocation, your job, your company will pay you to go and be there. And you'll be a part of a church there. Maybe there's some mission team around the world right now who is having a hard time picking up momentum because it's your spiritual gifts that they're missing. And when you get there, the puzzle is going to fall into place and people are going to start to come 
come to Christ, be transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. Pray, pray and go, pray and go and stay. All of us are afraid. All of us have excuses. But somebody's got to go. Might as well be us. Let's pray.